Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our uh, Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations. Our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. You can also read a written transcript of the presentation on the, uh, the, the WCS website or the Surety Today microsite. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt by email at jhyatt at wcslaw.com. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. So today we are going to talk about uh, the surety and unions. More specifically, we'll address you know, claims from unions, union benefit funds, uh, best practices and tips for dealing with such claims. When I was in college, I worked at a local grocery store warehouse and became a member of the Teamsters Union for a couple of years. So I'm not really uh, familiar with where Mr. Hoffa is and uh, not necessarily pro-union either. Uh, years ago, I had a case with a local um, roofers union out of Philadelphia and uh, they were asserting a claim against the surety. And while doing the background research for the case, I came across a reported opinion that involved this particular local from a few years prior. And the opinion detailed a long history of really bad conduct from this local. Officers stealing funds, bribery of public officials and judges, violence and intimidation against non-union uh, companies and workers. In one case, a group of union members went to a non-union work site and beat up the workers putting them in the hospital and destroyed their cars and equipment and materials, all just to send a message. It was like something out of a uh, fictional movie. And while I'm sure that was an aberration and most unions do not behave like that, just keep in mind that one certainly doesn't want to unnecessarily antagonize a union claimant. So as I mentioned in this presentation, we're going to explore the surety in unions. In uh, many circumstances, the surety will provide bonds for a principal that employs various union members and is a party uh, to a collective bargaining agreement, or the principal may not be a union shop but has signed a project labor agreement so that it can participate on a project that's been designated as a union project. In these circumstances, the surety may find itself faced with claims from unions for dues, wages, or from uh, union benefit funds for contributions owed for retirement funds, vacation funds, PAC funds, educational funds, et cetera. Sometimes the surety will issue a bond to the union directly just to secure the union and its benefit funds for a principal. So today we're going to spend some time talking about the unions, the various funds, and uh, uh, union claims and potential defenses and tips, as I mentioned. So first let's talk about the, the fringe benefit bonds. Fringe benefit bonds are issued to, you know, specifically and expressly protect the union trusts and the benefit funds like the pension, health, welfare, education, political action, apprenticeship funds, et cetera. These bonds are sometimes referred to as union bonds, health and welfare bonds, wage and welfare bonds, or collective bargaining bonds. 
Under these bonds, the union and its uh, various benefit funds are the obligees, and the bonded principal is the employer who is obligated under a CBA to make various uh, contributions to the union and such funds. The surety is, is secondarily liable under such bonds, with liability typically arising when the principal is and is declared to be in default under the terms of the CBA. Fringe benefit bonds can have a specific termination period or may be continuous with the termination being tied to the CBA itself. With a continuous bond, as long as the principal is a party to the CBA, the CBA and the CBA is in force, the fringe benefit bond will remain in place. Some fringe benefit bonds uh, may have a cancellation provision, which the surety can avail itself of if it no longer wishes to bond the principal. However, cancellation is not typically effective as to liability that is already accrued while the bond was in place. A friend of mine who is a claims handler that handles a lot of fringe benefit bond claims gave some good advice recently. She said, in her experience, you have to RTFB, which of course means read the friendly bond. So she stated that there's a very, very little uniformity in these types of bonds, and while each may have some similar provisions, each also may have unique provisions that might not be favorable to the surety. For example, she described a situation where a fringe, a fringe benefit bond had a $10,000 penal sum limit, but upon closer examination, the penal limit was for each covered employee. So that bond form gave potentially large exposure, depending on how many covered employees the principal employed, and uh, her underwriting department uh, simply missed it. They didn't realize what, what the bond had said. Needless to say, she probably arranged to cancel the bond before incurring further exposure. Fringe benefit bonds differ from payment bonds in that a payment bond is issued for one project and is project-specific, and it remains in place for that project, essentially, until limitations have run. A fringe benefit bond covers all of the principal's employees that are subject to the CBA, regardless of what project they're working on, for a designated period of time. Payment bonds also are generally limited as to the scope of damages, while the fringe benefit bonds typically allow recovery for damages set forth in the CBA, which can include things like attorney's fees, liquidated damages, interest, etc. Union fringe benefit trust funds typically operate by requiring the principal to provide monthly reports detailing the hours worked by each covered union employee and to remit payment of the fringe benefit deductions to the trust funds monthly. Periodically, uh, sometimes quarterly, the trust will audit the principal to verify the self-reporting payments required. A fringe benefit bond for a Maryland union benefit fund uh, that I've reviewed recently provides that if the required payments are not made when due and or the required reports are not timely filed, then the full penal sum of the bond, in that case it was $10,000, was to be paid to the funds upon certification by the union. If the principal subsequently paid the amounts owed or provided the reports, the union would refund the remaining amounts, less liquidated damages, attorney's fees, accountant fees, and all other costs and expenses of the union. This bond is essentially a forfeiture bond, particularly if the principal has gone out of business and won't be paying the amounts owed or filing the reports. The question remains under this bond form whether a court would allow a surety to seek a refund if it could establish the proper lesser amounts owed. While the scope of exposure under a fringe benefit bond may be somewhat broader, the exposure is generally ameliorated by typically smaller penal, penal sum limits, which are generally in the low tens of thousands. In one CBA I reviewed, the penal sum of the fringe benefit bond was determined by the number of employees. So if you had one to four employees, it was 5,000. If you had five to eight, it was 10,000. If you had nine or more, it was 25,000 on the penal sum. 
As with a payment bond, the surety may avail itself of any defenses that the principal would be able to assert with respect to claims against the fringe benefit bond, and we'll talk about that uh, a little later. Although the principal's defenses may be limited by ERISA and the terms of the CBA. So payment bonds, the typical payment bond uh, provides that the surety and principal bind themselves to pay sums that are justly due for labor, materials, and equipment furnished for use in, um, you know, in the performance of the construction project. In further defining the labor, materials, and equipment, the EJCDC bond form provides that it includes all items for which a mechanics lien could be asserted, which may broaden the scope of coverage of the bond depending on the local mechanics lien statute. Uh, a West Virginia State uh, Little Miller Act bond form provides that the condition of the bond is such that if the contractor shall well and truly perform the contract, and shall pay off, satisfy, and discharge all claims of subcontractors, laborers, materialmen, and all persons furnish, furnishing materials or doing work pursuant to the contract, then this obligation shall be null and void. In some jurisdictions, the Little Miller Act or other statutory requirement may specifically require payment of union dues and fringe benefits under the payment bond. Under New York's Little Miller Act, the phrase, monies due to persons furnishing labor to the contractor or his subcontractors, as used in the statute, is defined to include all sums payable to or on behalf of persons furnishing labor to the contractor or his subcontractors for wages, health, welfare, non-occupational disability, retirement, vacation benefits, holiday pay, life insurance, or other benefits, payment of which is required pursuant to the labor law or by the contract in connection with which the bond is furnished, or by a collective bargaining agreement between organized labor and the contractor or subcontractor. So we see that statute actually does specifically call out the uh, CBA and, and, and the fringe benefit bonds. Because of the requirement that the payment bond satis surety satisfy claims from laborers for wages, the majority of, of the courts that have, hel have held that the surety is generally obligated to pay claims for union fringe benefits and that the authorized representative, usually a trustee of those various funds, uh, of the fringe benefit funds, is entitled to assert, assert such claims on behalf of the union employees. In the uh, written transcript of this um, presentation, which will be on the website, uh, you can see a, a whole list of cases that we've, that we've provided there and some authorities that you can look to. The leading um, uh, case on this is a Supreme Court case we'll talk about in a second. A court's holding the surety liable under a payment bond for payment of fringe benefits view the concept of wages uh, for a laborer broadly, including direct wages and indirect wages, such as the fringe benefits, uh, as being part of the bargain for complete compensation for the work performed by a laborer. These courts point to the fact that in the CBA or the PLA, the principal has agreed that in exchange for the work performed by a union employee, the various amounts for the wages and the funds and the fringe benefits will be paid. In the United States, XREL Sherman versus Carter, the bonded principal, a general contractor, agreed in the CBA to pay seven and a half cents per hour of labor to the union health and welfare fund for its union laborers. The principal failed to pay the contribution and the trustee of the fund sued the surety. The surety argued that the contributions to the health and welfare fund were different than wages. The surety contended that the laborers were paid their wages due in their paychecks, and that the fund contribution was paid directly to the fund and not the labor, and thus such contributions were not wages. 
The Supreme Court rejected that argument, holding that wages for purposes of the Miller Act was not limited to just the paycheck. The court observed that the unpaid contributions were part of the consideration the principal agreed to pay for the services of the laborers. Thus, employees were not paid in full for their work until the fund contributions were paid. Addressing the right of a trustee uh, of a fund to sue on the bond, the court noted that the trustees are claiming recovery for the sole benefit of the beneficiaries of the fund, and those beneficiaries are the very ones who have performed the labor. The contributions are the means by which the fund is maintained for the benefit of the employees and other workers. The court stated, for purposes of the Miller Act, these contributions are in substance as much justly due to the employees who have earned them as are the wages payable directly to them in cash. In Pipeline Industry Benefit Fund versus Aetna, the uh, principal was required under a CBA to pay wages as well as 55 cents an hour to the health and welfare fund established for the union laborers. The applicable Oklahoma statute at the time defined wages as all remuneration for services from whatever source, including commissions and bonuses, and the cash value of all remuneration in any medium other than cash, gratuities customarily received by an individual in the course of his work from persons other than his employee and unit shall be treated as wages. Under this definition, the court held that the surety was liable for the unpaid health and welfare payments, which are considered wages and part of the labor costs. The court stated, simply because some of the workman's pay goes into a fund for his sickness and old age security instead of in a paycheck does not alter the fact that the fringe benefits are the result of his own efforts, the same as the money he puts in his pocket. Similarly, in Trustees Florida West Coast Trial Trades Pension Fund versus Quality Concrete, the principal was contractually obligated to pay the union benefits in the CBA but failed to do so. Looking to case law from the Miller Act for guidance, the Florida Court of Appeals ruled that if such funds could not be recovered against the payment bond, large portions of the laborer's compensation would be unprotected. Because the purpose of the Florida Little Miller Act is to protect laborers, the court held that the surety is liable for the union benefit payments under the payment bond. So, and, that, and that's what you see when you do the research. A lot of the cases in the, at the state level for the Little Miller Act really look to the Supreme Court decision in that Sherman Carter case and, and basically follow the reasoning of that. But uh, while the majority of courts have held that surety uh, is liable under the payment bond for fringe benefits, some courts have held that a surety is not liable under its payment bond for benefit claims. In, um, in a um, Eastern District of Michigan case, uh, the trustees of the fringe benefit funds asserted a claim against the payment bond. The surety argued that the Michigan Little Miller Act should be strictly construed and that under such construction, the trustees do not have standing because they are not claimants as defined by the statute and cannot obtain the relief sought because fringe benefits are not included within the provisions of the statute. So they took a statutory construction approach. The court agreed that the Little Miller Act was required to be strictly construed and that the trustees of the employee benefit funds were not claimants within the meaning of the statute and did not have standing to bring suit against the surety. The court noted that the statute did not say that the claimant or its representatives or its assinees may sue and simply identifies the claimant as one who furnishes labor material. Similarly, the court concluded that the Michigan legislature, through its silence, had manifested its legislative intent to exclude fringe benefits from wages. Thus, the court concluded that the term wages as set forth in the statute is limited to the literal definition of that word. 
court noted that there was nothing within any case law or legislative history which would suggest that wages was meant to be construed so broadly as to include fringe benefits. The court stated it is presumed that if the legislature had intended to include fringe benefits within statute, it could have said so. It's obvious that the legislature did not. Uh, another case, the court in, in trustees of Sheet Metal Workers Local Union 17 versus U.S. Fire Insurance Company out of uh, Massachusetts held that the provisions of the payment bond extend bond coverage only to those providers of labor and or material who qualify as defined claimants. The bond expressly defined a claimant as one having a direct contract with the principal for labor, material, or both, and permits only claimants as herein defined to sue on the bond. Based on the language of the bond, the court held that the trustees had no rights under the bond or under controlling case law to sue on the bond. So while the majority of courts have, have allowed, uh, and certainly in the Miller Act arena, have allowed uh, fringe benefit uh, funds, union funds, to file claims against the payment bond, there are cases out there where courts have gone the other way based on either a statutory construction or based upon a, the construction of the language of the bond itself. Um, as I noted earlier, unions and fringe benefit funds are subject to the same defenses as any claimant on a bond. So, uh, for example, a union fringe benefit claimant must fall within the statutory protection um, of the Miller Act or Little Miller Act at issue. In J.W. Bateson Company versus U.S. X-Rail Board of Trustees of the National Automatic Sprinkler Industry Pension Fund, uh, the Supreme Court held that the, uh, observed that the general contractor entered into a contract with the United States for construction of an addition to a hospital and pursuant to the Miller Act provided a payment bond. A sub-subcontractor, sub the sprinkler installer, had entered into a CBA with the Sprinkler Fitters Union and was obligated under the agreement to pay over amounts withheld from employees' wages for union dues and vacation savings, uh, for contributions to the union's welfare, pension, education funds, etc. When the sub-sub failed to make the payments, the union and trustees of the funds filed suit against the general contractor and its surety. Under the Miller Act, the claimant must have a direct contract with the general contractor or a subcontractor. Accordingly, the Supreme Court held that the employees of a sub-subcontractor were not entitled to recover under the prime contractor's Miller Act payment bond for failure of the sub-subcontractor to turn over fringe benefit funds and union dues which had been withheld from their pay because the employees did not have a contractual relationship with a prime contractor or a subcontractor. So that can provide you with a potential avenue of defense by seeing whether these employees who are, you know, who are basically con contract contracting with uh, a sub or a sub-sub and, and determine whether they fall in under the protection of the, of the scope of the statute or, or the bond even. So another uh, potential defense is, is relating to notice requirements. Uh, in in trustees of heating, piping, and refrigeration pension fund versus Millstone Construction Services out of the District of Maryland, the general contractor entered into three contracts with the National Institutes of Standards and Technology to perform construction work on three buildings. Pursuant to the Miller Act, the general contractor provided payment and performance bonds. The general contractor then entered into a subcontract with a mechanical contractor to perform pipe fitting and related construction work. The subcontractor operated a union shop and had entered into a CBA with the Steamfitters Union in which it agreed to make contributions for each hour work by a pipe fitter. 
When the subcontractor failed to make the required contributions, the Steamfitters Union and its pension fund, medical fund, training fund, promotion fund, communication and productivity fund, whatever the hell that is, and the retirement savings fund filed suit against the surety. The surety contended that it was entitled to summary judgment because the union and its various funds failed to give proper notice under the Miller Act. The act requires a claimant to give written notice to the contractor within 90 days from the date on which the person did or performed the last of the labor or furnished or supplied the last of the material for which the claim is made. The notice must state with substantial accuracy the amount claimed. The court noted that the Miller Act requires proper and timely notice as a condition precedent of the right to maintain suit on a payment bond. And while the Miller Act as a whole is to be liberally construed, the notice requirements are designed to protect the general contractor and the requirements concerning notice are to be strictly applied. In this case, the notice provided by the union and its funds failed to state any amount owed in violation of the requirement of the Miller Act. Accordingly, the court granted summary judgment in favor of the surety because the notice served by the union and the funds failed to state the amount claimed with substantial accuracy. Another potential uh, ground of defense uh, could be um, limitations, um, whether or not whether or not these claims are made uh, timely. So, in Minnesota Laborers Health and Welfare Fund versus Granite Re Inc. Uh, out of Minnesota, the plaintiffs were uh, union fringe benefit funds that collected funds on behalf of the union employees for employers bound by the various uh, CBA agreements. The principal under the bond. Um, allegedly failed to pay these fringe benefits uh, obligations for work performed by employees on the bonded project. The trial court dismissed the case filed by the funds because the suit was barred by the one-year limitation provision in the bond. Now, on appeal, that was overruled because the, the funds argued that there was uh, fraudulent concealment of the claim by the principal uh, to the union, and so the, the union was claiming that it didn't realized it had a claim, quote-unquote, uh, until later, and so therefore its claim wasn't barred by limitations. And so the court, you know, uh, recognized that that was a potential argument, and it remanded the case uh, for further proceedings to determine whether, in fact, you know, there was, uh, excuse me, whether there was this uh, fraudulent concealment that would be sufficient to uh, allow the claim to proceed. So that's... Uh, that's another defense, obviously, that you know that you can pursue. Um, let's take a look at this issue of, and I'm, I'm hesitating here because it's a long discussion, and I'm not sure if we're going to have enough time, but let's try to get through it anyway. Um, actually, let's back up. Let's do some of the little practical tips and pointers, and then we'll come back to ERISA preemption. So first is the practical tips. As noted earlier, the union fringe benefit funds claim will be based on the alleged hours worked by the union employee. As a claims handler, you must make sure that you have all of the relevant documents to evaluate that claim. So you're going to need a copy of the CBA and the PLA. You're going to need the, uh, the payment bond or fringe benefit bond, whatever, whatever you're dealing with, the principles or even both in some cases, the uh, principles internal payroll records, timesheets, certified payroll, daily project reports, and any other records maintained, whether by the principal or the general contractor or the architect or the owner, which might show who was working on the project and what they were doing and the amount of time they were there, because that's going to be the key that you're going to need to figure out whether the claim is valid or not. 
Uh, in addition, you're going to need to get a copy of the, of the, the benefit funds audits, any audits that they did, and any of the reports that were submitted by the principal to the funds. And you want to go back a few years so that you can compare, you know, prior years with current years and make sure that the numbers make sense and they're not out of whack. Uh, another tip is to check the details. So in, evaluate, in evaluating a union benefits claim, you should always check the hourly rates applied by the funds. Make sure they apply the hourly rate for the work the employee was performing on that specific job and that it's accurate. Check the dates the work was performed with the effective dates of the fringe benefit bond and the CBA to ensure that the work was actually covered. With respect to claims against the payment bond, make sure that the claim is for work performed on the bonded project and, and not on some other project that wasn't bonded by the payment bond, if that's, if that's where the claim is being made. And, and another, another practical tip is to, to make note of whether you're dealing with a union principal. So when you get, you get claims coming in, you start to see that your principal's circling the drain, you, you, really, have, uh, you really have to make sure that you're cognizant of, the, of whether or not this is a union shop or whether or not they've got PLAs out there and union employees working on various jobs. Uh, because if they are, you're going to need to make sure that you're looking for the data that you'll need to determine the amount of the potential exposure to these unions and the fringe benefit funds. Union, uh, unions and the fringe benefit funds are notorious for taking a long time to make their claims. And if you're not expecting it, the contract funds may be gone, documents may be gone, witnesses may be gone. So you need to, uh, to figure this out, whether you've got union exposure right up front. Uh, you also need to be able to assess that exposure so that you know, you can make your evaluation of what course of action to take uh, with respect to the, the failing principle. So we got uh, about five minutes left. Let's uh, touch on another uh, aspect here. Um, so, so, yeah, this issue of, of, of ERISA, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, uh, that, is a, that is a statute that it's a comprehensive federal statutory scheme governing, governing employee benefit plans. All employee benefit plans must conform to various reporting disclosures and uh, fiduciary requirements and pension plans must also comply with the participation, vesting, and funding requirements. ERISA does not require employers to provide any given set of minimum, minimum benefits, but instead con controls the administration of benefit plans by imposing reporting and disclosure mandates, participation investing requirements, funding standards, fiduciary responsibilities, et cetera. Congress enacted ERISA to promote the interests of employees and their beneficiaries in employee benefit plans and to eliminate the threat of conflicting or inconsistent state and local regulation of employee benefit plans. To that end, Congress included an express preemption provision providing that ERISA supersedes any and all state laws insofar as they may now or hereafter relate to any employee benefit plan. So this, you know, this preemptive scope of the statute is, is very, very broad and, and very, you know, all-encompassing. And so the Supreme Court has, has looked at that and has observed that, you know, if relate to, quote-unquote, were taken to extend to the furthest stretch of its interdeterminacy, then for all practical purposes, preemption would never run its course. And so the court has, has set about uh, to, to interpret the, the statute and the preemption in a more narrow way and has, um, and has, has issued numerous opinions 
talking about, you know, what, what, how to interpret the statute, how to interpret the preemption. And so in light of this analysis, the majority of the courts have held that when a union or its benefit funds are asserting payment bond claims, such claims are not preempted by ERISA. So in our, uh, in our transcript that will be on the website, you'll be able to see a number of cases there um, where, you know, where, where courts have held that there, there is no preemption. And even under ERISA, the courts have held that if a claim um, were to be made under ERISA against the surety, it would not be upheld because ERISA relates to the, the, the relationship of an employer as having these responsibilities under ERISA, and numerous courts have held that a surety is not an employer for purposes of ERISA. So you've got, you've got, um, you've got that. It, you know, it, it, preemption in this case would, is actually would work backwards. You would almost want to have preemption because if you did, then you wouldn't have as a surety any exposure under ERISA. But the courts have gone the other way for the most part on this. So uh, let's let's close things out here. Before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, November 12th at 1230. Eastern Time and will be the first of a two-part series on bankruptcy preferences. So the November presentation will be George Backrack and I on the topic of uh, bankruptcy preferences, the sureties, direct exposure for, for uh, preferential transfers. And then the following month on December 10th, George and I will present on the topic of bankruptcy preferences, the sureties, indirect exposure for, for uh, preferential transfers and potential liability to third parties. So that'll be good. You'll want to get those two together and um, and get up to speed on on uh, preferences. Upcoming events in the surety industry: the uh, Chicago Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be held on October 18th. The Philadelphia Surety Claims uh, next luncheon will be uh, November 14th, and my partner Cindy Rogers Ware will be speaking at that. The uh, National Bond Claims Association will hold its annual meeting at Pinehurst, North Carolina. October 10th through the 12th, and George will be attending that. So be sure to say hi uh, if you run into George. Thanks again so much for joining me today, and I look forward to uh, speaking to everybody next month. Now let's unmute the line.